Welcome to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. It's good to have your company here today, as it always is at 3CR. And when I say at 3CR, that's at 3CR up there in the ether. Uh, in these covidinous times, we're not actually in the studio, and neither is Dale, and neither is Jean. Um, but we are here because we need to defend government schools. We are the defenders of government schools. We are the DOGS. And we have been around for many, many, many years. In fact, we've been around so long that we are history. We are living history, as they say. And we're living history that's been recognised just this week um, because the Dogs case, which was the High Court case, which the Defence of Government Schools organisation took to the High Court um, in the late 70s and into the early 80s, has just had a documentary special um, done on it on the ABC uh, Radio National, on their History Matters radio show and podcast. And we'll be playing you um, what it was that the Australian Broadcasting Network thinks of both the case and us, and Jean was interviewed for that, and so you'll hear her voice in a different context in the show coming up as we replay you um, the uh, History Matters podcast. But before we do that, of course... We cannot deny our regular listeners the treat that we offer every week, which is, in fact, Jean's world-famous press release. Jean's world-famous press release. What number is it this this week, Jean? 841. Excellent. 841 it, uh, in the uh, ether. It leads, into, it leads into the ABC program, yes. Oh, very is. good. So it, it's related. Yes, Jean, please continue. Press release 841. The Dogs High Court case gets an airing on the ABC. In 1980, after a 15-year struggle, the Dogs organisation, led by Ray Nielsen, finally had their case on Section 116 of the Australian Constitution heard by the full High Court. In 1979, in an effort to break their spirit and their resources, the Catholic Church had led their barristers through Mary Dance, a trial of facts. In this trial, held before Justice Lionel Murphy, the church witnesses tried to prove that their schools were not religious but educational institutions. They tried to prove that their schools were no more religious than state schools. And they just broke the dog's finances, but... Um, You'll hear in the, in the, in the ABC program how we kept going because of a lady called Sylvia Child. Now the dogs lost the case since the majority of judges gave what was the Bill of Rights clause taken substantially from the American Constitution a very, very narrow interpretation. But the Justice Murphy dissent waits in the wings for another time. In 1981, however, the floodgates were open to funding of both religious schools and religious, religious religions themselves by the federal government. And now, in 2020, the battle over school funding is heating up every year and religious liberty, which was lost in 1981, is on the coalition agenda because church authorities are demanding privileges to select those who should be given a first-rate 
which could be given, which they think should be given, a first-rate ticket to heaven and a good job. Ray Nielsen, in 1981, had quite a bit to say, and he was finally given a bit of oxygen by the ABC, and you'll hear this in this program. You'll hear Ray Nielsen's voice back from the dead in the archives, from the archives. But at the time, Ray Nielsen wept for the loss of great ideals, religious liberty and free, secular and universal education for all children. But we, the dogs, are still here and we're still fighting for these ideals. Now, Ray Nielsen said back in 1981 that a nation can lose its liberty in a day but not wake up that they've lost it for a century. But in Australia, 40 years later, in 2020, some people are waking up to what we lost in 1980-81. Now, finally, the ABC has taken up the issue in the Radio National History Listen Program, and it's entitled The Dogfight Over School Funding that Went All the Way to the High Court. And we recommend that you have a look at their website. Thank you very much, Jean. Yeah, we have a short break now. And after that, we'll be returning um, with some strange voices, voices from the ABC, a program called History Listens, Section 71, High Court Cases Changed Australia. And indeed, we the dogs were part of that. We'll have that after a few messages. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African-Australian make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local Issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuwaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 
3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Section 71, High Court Cases That Changed Australian History. I'm Patrick Kayser. This story begins in 1960s Australia, when the conditions for a High Court battle over education were just starting to be laid. It's a fight that might help you understand how Australian schools are funded to this day. In the 1960s, the big issues of the day were, one, Vietnam and conscription, and two, education. That's Dr Michael Hogan, a retired professor of political science and a former Catholic priest. So what did Australian schools look like in the early 1960s? Helen Proctor, an associate professor at the University of Sydney, has researched the history of Australian education. You had three main kinds of schools in Australia. You had state schools run by the state governments. You had a few elite private schools that enrolled, you know, 5% or fewer of the population. And then you had the mainly parochial Catholic schools that were run by local parishes. And you had a few other kinds of Catholic schools as well. And schools in Australia were struggling to keep up with the demand the post-war baby boom, so schools had grown exponentially in the Second World War period. The impact of the new settlers on Australia's way of life can be seen everywhere. Migration was pouring people into the country. People were moving around the cities because of slum clearance and things like that. So new areas were suddenly exploding in size and there were no facilities there for them. Tongues of many nations learning a common tongue for the children and their children's children. A lot of the children couldn't speak English. Jean Ely is a public education advocate. As a young music teacher based in Sydney's western suburbs in the early 1960s, she saw firsthand the impact of the education crisis on students. When I taught out of Parramatta, that was at Arthur Phillip High School in 1962, my first-year students were spending most of the time out in the playground because there were bird lice in the ceiling. This was just not acceptable in a wealthy country like Australia. And as the number of students grew in Australia through the decade, education became more expensive to deliver. Helen Proctor again. People had been staying longer at school so that secondary schools were growing. The curriculum was becoming more complex. Um, Certain things like science education were becoming more expensive. Education generally was in a crisis, and especially for Catholic schools, it was an added crisis. So the Catholic parish schools had traditionally relied on the unpaid labour of nuns particularly, but also brothers and priests to run their schools. And um, there weren't enough of them to be able to look after the increased numbers coming into the school. In the 1960s, Michael Hogan was training to become a Catholic priest. He was sent to a parish school in Blacktown in Western Sydney. There was a brother teaching at the other end of a hall and I was teaching at one end, facing each other with no gap between us. A hundred kids, two teachers yelling at one another from opposite ends of the room. There's no way we could have taught anybody anything in that kind of circumstance. In the 60s, the key battle was actually about providing state aid to Catholic schools. 
State aid was the term used to describe federal funding for education, because historically the Commonwealth had no direct role in funding education. The state governments were solely responsible for schools. The elite Protestant schools weren't particularly lobbying for state aid. In fact, some of the elite private schools in the 1960s didn't want public money because they thought that it would actually have too many strings attached and they saw themselves as proudly independent and I think they saw it as akin to welfare. This year there are more than 110,000 children in Catholic schools in the Archdiocese of Melbourne alone. There are another 50,000 who are not getting a Catholic schooling. The trouble is that the system... The view of the bishops, especially the Sydney bishops, was that they should leave all the politicking to the bishops and they would negotiate with governments and political parties. Very many lay people looked at that kind of uh, assumption and said, that's crazy, we've been relying upon the bishops to do something for a hundred years and nothing has happened. Unless we get organised, nothing will happen. At this time, many students in Catholic schools came from poor, working-class families. And on July 13, 1962, Catholic parents brought things to a head in the New South Wales town of Goulburn. It was all over a broken toilet quite bizarrely. It was here at the Lady of Mercy College in Goulburn that the whole business of state aid really came to a head. This lavatory was condemned as being unsuitable and too small for the number of pupils attending this school. The health departments and the education department demanded that it be renovated. But the Catholic bishop here said that they couldn't afford to and asked the state to help. The answer was no. This escalated to a strike whereby the parents voted to take all their kids out of the Catholic schools and send them to the local public schools to enrol. Um, so what happened with these fabulous images of Catholic kids enrolling up to these local public schools all on one day and, you know, pandemonium ensuing? The point that the Catholic people of Goulburn were trying to make was that if governments didn't fund Catholic schools, then the Catholic schools would have to close fairly soon. Give us the money now, and you won't have to support the inflow of Catholic children into public schools. At the time, it wasn't a huge success, but in the longer term, it is seen as a big success because of this image of kids being turned away from the public schools. After a week, the token strike ended, and success was claimed by a spokesman. The question of state aid has been tossed into political arenas throughout Australia. By the time Catholic parents marched in Goulburn in 1962, Robert Menzies' Liberal Coalition government was warming to the idea of state aid. Internally, members of the country party, now known as the Nationals, were supportive, as many of their own children attended private boarding schools. Menzies could see the potential for more votes. After all, the then federal Labor opposition was opposed to state aid. It had put the right-wing Labor government in New South Wales in an almost impossible position, and this is what Menzies was exploiting. And Menzies basically was going to the country in 1963 saying, why are you Catholics supporting the, the Labor Party? Come to us. Where is the sun? In 1967, three years after the Menzies government began funding education, teachers' union members and parents decided to form a lobby group to oppose state aid to private schools. 
They call themselves the National Council for the Defence of Government Schools, or the DOGS for short. There are only two things we stand for. One is for government schools, public education, which is free, secular and universal, open to all children. And the corollary of that is that we are also wanting to fight for the separation of religion from the state. And for this reason, we oppose state aid to private schools, private religious schools. Retired teacher Jean Ely was one of the DOG's founding members and remains the group's treasurer over 50 years later. We were certainly in the dissenting tradition. Well, there were also Roman Catholics amongst us. That's what I was going to ask. Were there, were there many religious people in the Defence Council? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Because the separation of church and state comes out of hundreds of years of very bloodthirsty persecution of religious people. In 1970, the dogs were dismayed to see federal funding for private schools extended. Tonight, a Monday conference debate on state aid for independent schools. Three Last supporters day of state aid, praise be to God. That's the motto of this school, Sydney Grammar. One of the eight so-called elite schools now promised $9 million in government aid. Notable old boys include Mr McMahon, the Prime yes, Minister, Sydney Sydney Grammar doesn't have its own dental surgery or nine-bed hospital like King's, nor does it have nine sporting ovals like Knox Grammar. But if its land was ever sold for commercial development, it would probably raise nearly $10 million. The government is already paying more than $200 a year for each Grammar pupil. Whether you think it should receive an extra $1.5 million of public money depends on your point of view. And, as the headmaster says, we won't know that until the next election. We saw these very wealthy schools getting swimming pools and other things and we still couldn't get our maintenance for basic things for our children. In 1972, Gough Whitlam led the Labor Party to power after 23 years out of office. As deputy leader, Whitlam had spoken out against his own party's opposition to state aid. And in 1973 the Whitlam Labor government raised the coalition's flat rate grants for private schools, pegging this to 20% of the state government's funding for public schools. The dogs wanted to challenge state aid for private schools in the High Court on the grounds that it would breach the Constitution. In order to do this, you need to prove that you're personally affected by the legal issue at stake. But it wasn't clear if the dogs, as an interest group, could do this. So they needed the approval of an Attorney-General who could launch a public interest test case on state aid in the High Court. It was difficult to find an Attorney-General willing to do this. For a Federal Attorney-General, that would mean challenging their own party's laws. And since states were receiving funding under the state aid scheme, their Attorneys-General weren't interested either. And we didn't get to court until finally we got feared from Wilcox in Victoria, in the Hamer government. Jean Ely is referring there to former Victorian Attorney-General Vernon Wilcox from the Liberal Hamer government. In November 1973, Wilcox took the extraordinary step of approving the dog's constitutional challenge to state aid. Because he believed that people had the right to take the government to court on a constitutional issue, even if he personally disagreed with our position. Jean Early lived in West Melbourne, next door to the late Ray Nielsen, a fellow Dogs member and a key player behind the scenes in the High Court case. 
It was Nielsen who found a solicitor for the dogs. Uh, my name is John Nicholas Zagouris, and I'm aged 80. So how did you arrive at the view that state aid was something to be opposed? I remember going to Melbourne University and the first lecture in the public lecture theatre in the law school. I noticed that all the private school lads sat at the front as if they had the right to occupy those seats. And that was that serious impression of entitlement. And I always felt that state aid would assist those who had what they thought an entitlement. The Catholic Church wasn't a party in the dog's case, but it helped the Commonwealth defend state aid in the High Court. The Church had a key role to play because 80% of the schools involved here were Catholic schools. That's Brian Croke. In 1978, he was hired, fresh out of university, as the Church's research officer on the dog's case. There was already bipartisan political support for funding of schools and both governments, Commonwealth and State, were actively engaged in it. It was growing significantly at that point and there was no turning back from that in political terms, in social terms, educational terms. So I think there was a fair confidence that the, uh, the case would, would be a victory for the Commonwealth. But nonetheless, it was the uncertainty that was injected into it rather than the fear that the world will be lost if this case is lost by the Commonwealth. Some barristers declined to represent the dogs in the High Court because they didn't think they could win. But the group eventually found two barristers who would take on the case. My name is Jack Fagenbaum, and I was junior counsel to Neil McPhee for the plaintiff commonly called the dogs, the defence of government schools. If there was one argument that you were determined to make above all others, what was it? Simply that all the Commonwealth had no business financing religion. In March 1979, a preliminary trial was held before one High Court judge, the late Justice Lionel Murphy, in order to determine the facts of the matter. Weeks were spent in his court seeking to demonstrate that the, the religious schools, there were Jewish schools and uh, Catholic schools and also non-Catholic Christian schools, that their purpose was purely a religious purpose. They were interested in the religious education, not in the secular education. Well, we thought, I think the church thought that was a naive argument. Brian Croke, a former research officer for the Catholic Church. From a church's point of view, they were pretty clear that any funding was funding for schools. Uh, the Commonwealth was funding the education of young Australians, uh, irrespective of what school they happened to go to. The dogs barrister, Jack Fagenbaum, says that in that preliminary trial, the odds were stacked against them. All of the relevant witnesses were not on our side, and in this case came from the institutions that were the recipient of the aid and that it was in their interest for us to lose. So it was difficult to cross-examine them. Neil McPhee was examining a nun and in the course of her evidence, the nun said she prayed every day. And McPhee asked her, for whom do you pray? I pray for you, Mr McPhee. <laughs> this is PM. Good evening from Hugh Evans. And as you heard, the Prime Minister, Mr Fraser, has reaffirmed the government's determination to continue the funding of non-government schools. The debate has flared up again over the challenge in the High Court by the Defence of Government Schools organisation. The dogs showed Justice Murphy evidence that church schools were using public funding for religious purposes. 
Here's Dog's co-founder, the late Ray Nielsen, in a news report. They're building churches with taxpayers' money. They're using it for adult religious education. They're using it to build up their parish work activities. Anybody who wants to really look at the facts uh, can see all that. In January 1980, Justice Lionel Murphy finished hearing the facts of the case and referred the question of whether state aid was legally valid to the full bench of the High Court. It was a small initial victory, but the dogs now needed to raise more money to pay their lawyers for the full hearing. At a crucial point, we really had no more money. We didn't know where we were going to go. And uh, Sylvia Child, who was one of the twin sisters of Ray Nielsen, had recently married, and she and her husband had money sent aside. I think it was well over 50000 a lot in those days, for their dream home up at Whittlesea on the farm. And her husband made out a cheque for $50,000-odd. So in March 1980, the Dogs High Court case finally began. The Defence of Government Schools legal team argued that there was a part of the Australian Constitution that prevented the Federal Government from funding religious schools. Section 116 of the Australian Constitution. The Commonwealth shall not make any law for establishing any religion. That was what our case was about. Did this prevent state aid being given to religious schools? And in the United States, that is an accepted argument that you can't funnel federal money to religious entities, including religious schools. Luke Beck is an associate professor at Monash University's Law School. He says Section 116 of the Australian Constitution is partly based on the Religious Freedom Clause in the United States Bill of Rights. Section 116 is really about limiting federal power in respect of religion, partly to ensure separation of church and state, partly to ensure respect for religious freedom and individual rights. But largely it's about preventing religious intolerance on the part of the Commonwealth. So the Commonwealth isn't able to favour one religion over others. And we knew it was going to be difficult in Australia to convince the High Court to accept the American doctrine that Section 116 constructed, as Thomas Jefferson called it, a wall of separation between church and state. So the dogs tried to show the High Court historical records of debates in the drafting of the Australian Constitution, hoping that these would prove the link between Section 116 and the United States Constitution. Well, that was when we found out that we couldn't put the historical documents in. At that time, the High Court would not allow the constitutional debates into evidence. This was a huge blow to the dogs' argument. If the High Court didn't have to consider the convention debates, it could come up with its own interpretation of what the drafters of the Constitution meant when they said that the Commonwealth cannot make a law to establish any religion. Sir Anthony Mason was one of the seven judges who decided the dog's case in the High Court. I didn't think the argument was sufficiently strong to justify concluding that financial assistance to schools amounted to establishing a religion. In my view, establishing a religion means setting up a religion as a national institution, as the Anglican Church was in England, for example, and that providing financial assistance didn't amount to that. You'd have to actually establish a religion as the religion of the nation, and that includes making it a national institution, entrenching it as part of the political system, and imposing obligations on citizens to support the religion, and clearly that wasn't happening here. 
Anne Toomey, a constitutional law professor at the University of Sydney. On the 2nd of February 1981, the High Court handed down its decision in Canberra. This is PM. Good evening from Hugh Evans. And as you've heard, a legal challenge begun eight years ago by the Defence of Government Schools organisation, known as DOGS, against government aid to private schools, was dismissed today by the High Court, which held by a decision of six to one, with Mr Justice Murphy dissenting, that state aid was valid under the Constitution. Brian Croke was in the High Court that day. I had to communicate the judgment to Sydney. The only way to do that was by public phone. The main court was packed with lawyers, nuns and priests, parents, journalists and visitors. All waited patiently as the judges one by one gave their decision. When it got to four in favour, I bolted. So I was the first one out and down the stairs on the phone to say that the majority had ruled against the plaintiffs and in favour of the Commonwealth and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Mr Ray Nielsen from the Council for the Defence of Government Schools was bitterly disappointed. Uh, the decision will be an incitement for the churchmen to plunder the taxpayers' purse. There's no doubt about that. So, and it'll be a black day for the public school system in Australia. Six of the seven High Court judges ruled that the funding for religious schools was valid because it was for educational purposes and not for establishing a religion. Dog's co-founder, Jean Ely, was with her newborn baby in country Victoria when she learned about the decision. She drove straight down to Ray Nielsen's house. So I had this baby, Jamie, and um, I put him in the car because I thought the baby would give comfort to the Nielsen family. And when I walked into the kitchen, Mrs Nielsen, she was standing at the kitchen sink and she said, in these situations, Jean, you just keep working. And that's how she was. Hmm. Since the dogs case nearly 40 years ago, federal governments have expanded their funding of religious schools. Education historian Helen Proctor. I think that the dogs case has been interpreted to mean that the Commonwealth has a responsibility to fund non-government schools and that's not quite what the case found. It found that it was permissible. It brought legitimacy to the Commonwealth's role as a funder of schools. Brian Croke went on to become the Executive Director of the Catholic Education Commission of New South Wales, a position he held for 25 years right through the 80s, particularly with the election of the Hawke government. That was the largest single growth period from 84 to 92. While the methods have changed, the quantum has kept on growing and the Commonwealth has kept on becoming more and more the single most significant funder of Catholic schools and probably all religious schools in that sense. Since the 1980s, the private school sector has exploded, in particular independent schools. And Catholic schools are a long way from where they were when the fight over state aid first began in the 1960s. A lot of Catholic schools are funded almost entirely by federal government funding. I mean, some people argue that it, they shouldn't really be called private schools at all because they're very strongly state-subsidised. The debate on school funding has shifted significantly over the last 40 years. Now, the focus is really on how it should be fairly distributed across the sector. Most people agree that public schools 
are the losers in this debate, that public schools do seem to be treated as just simply another competitor in the school market. And I think it's often forgotten that public schools, they have this responsibility to enrol everyone, but they do disproportionately enrol the poorest, they disproportionately enrol kids with disabilities, kids with complex needs. That is often not recognised. Check the My School website and you'll see that, well, not only are the majority of schools still government schools, the average government school is funded at a much higher rate than non-government schools. What will be true to say is that from a Commonwealth point of view, and the Commonwealth is only one player in this, in the 1970s, the balance of the Commonwealth outlays between government and non-government schools was much more even than it is today, definitely. Brian Croak. Historian and former Catholic priest Michael Hogan says that the disparity between private and public school funding has its origins in the 1970s with the Fraser Liberal government. Fraser put in place a system of bureaucratic funding whereby the Commonwealth looked after the interests of private schools and and therefore mostly Catholic schools and states had a greater interest in looking after the funding of public schools. And this still remains the case and are still a problem, and as long as it goes on, public schools are going to be relatively disadvantaged when compared with especially a lot of the richer private schools. And this kind of strange split responsibility has taken on some sort of axiomatic status in the contemporary political world, alongside the widespread belief by both major parties of government that it's political suicide to tamper with private school funding. Since the Dogs case in 1981, there's been no similar High Court challenge to the federal funding of private religious schools. Luke Beck. It has encouraged, I think, the federal government to think that they can give money to religion, they can give favours to religious groups if they want, without any constitutional limitations on that. The only limitations are political. But there could be a twist in this tale. Today, the High Court's decision in the Dogs case is considered controversial because it's based on an approach to interpreting the Constitution that's now outdated. The High Court said that limitations on federal legislative power must be interpreted as narrowly as possible. But nowadays, the High Court says all provisions of the Constitution should be interpreted as broadly as possible. And at the time of the Defence of Government Schools case, the High Court said you must never, ever look at the Hansard or the transcript of the convention debates where the Constitution was written. But nowadays the High Court says, well, yes, of course you can look at what the people who wrote the Constitution said. So the Defence of Government Schools tried but ultimately failed to get the High Court to read the convention debates. Why was that so important for the result? Because that changed uh, the interpretation of what does establishing any religion mean. If you look at the convention debates, we know that they were borrowing from the United States, so American conceptions are relevant. And largely, I think, if you read between the lines, they don't want to go down the American path of culture wars in the courts. The First Amendment and other provisions of the US Bill of Rights are the source of a lot of culture war debates about the role of religion, the role of guns, and the High Court simply saying, we don't want to go down that American path. Personally... I think that if the case came back to today's High Court, there's a real chance it could strike down federal funding of religious schools. And there are still big question marks over certain aspects of that funding. Luke Beck again. Giving 
federal money for educational purposes in a way that plays favourites between religions is probably a serious question as to whether that could possibly be valid. And giving federal money for religious purposes, such as building a chapel or a mosque, for example, that would also have to be seriously under doubt. If any of these questions come before the High Court in the future, its judges will have to revisit the decision in the dog's case to work out how to answer them. That's why the dog solicitor John Zagouris thinks that, despite the loss in 1981, the fight was one worth having. It's a foundation for future arguments. The decision's been made, and we can always go back to it. You've been listening to Section 71, High Court Cases That Changed Australian History. It's produced by Jane Lee. Our executive producer is Michelle Rayner, and I'm Patrick Kayser. Well, yes, that was ABC Radio National, um, and you recognise some voices there, I'm sure, Jean, talking in quite emotional terms about Sylvie and Bob Child and how individuals gave sacrificially such that the court case could go ahead in the first place. Now, Radio National, uh, we thank them very much for taking an interest in the court case. We imagine this will be just the beginning rather than the end of this discussion, and um, certainly here on the Dogs Program, because what is important to note is that 3CR is a radio station that includes all of the facts. And there were a large number of things that were missed out of that half-hour broadcast, as is necessary sometimes with the national broadcaster, but we'll be filling you in in the gaps, the behind the scenes of what actually went on in 1981, because we actually have an eyewitness. Jean was there, and I think we need to dig down into that just a little bit more. But thanks very much to Radio National. If you're interested in that, that's a podcast. It's available at um, abc.com.au under the under the tag History Listens, Section 71. But um, we'll return uh, with more in-depth discussion about exactly what you've just heard on the Dogs Program after a bit of music.
You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here. And we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe and be kind to each other. Teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's just not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back to the Dogs program here on 3CR 855 and AM Dog podcast on the WWWs. Um, Jean, um, you've just done a show on, on the ABC Radio National and you were quoted in, in, in not great depth about what went on during that period of time. It was also worth noting that it was good to hear Ray Nielsen's voice um, back on the radio again. Now, Ray Nielsen quite pointedly said that the day after the judgment came down against the dogs, that it was a dark day for public education and that he, you know, basically foretold boom for the decades ahead, which has actually played out. Now, I've got a two-part question. Firstly, what do you think Ray meant by darker days ahead back in 1981, and how do you think that's played out? And the second part of the question is that many of the protagonists, the Catholics and, and the people who were um, um, friends of the court or something, um, were talking in terms of the inevitability of public funding for private schools. And I'd like you to make a comment on this idea of the Commonwealth Government inevitably funding um, private schools in Australia and whether, in fact, that's something that was ever true, let alone being true now. Well, there was nothing inevitable about it um, until, of course, the deal. no mention was made of the DLP in the political situation. Uh, and the, the Catholic vote. Um, no mention also has ever been made that the bishops uh, were not prepared to have state aid unless they had the power to do with it as they wished. And that is what they have been doing since 1964. Uh, there's been all this talk about needs policies, but they've never been put into effect because the Catholic bureaucracy, uh, the hierarchy and the um, bureaucracy that they've set up, very improvised bureaucracy, has never really cared about the disadvantaged children. Their disadvantaged children are mainly in public schools anyway. They have mainly been concerned about um, the elite schools, making sure that the elite schools 
well-resourced and they had networks into the power structures of this country. And uh, this is now coming out, of course, with Turnbull's memoirs. He was horrified uh, when, in fact, one of the bishops was reasonably um, upfront with him about what's going on. But um, this was all predicted. Can you please elaborate on that, Jean? What, what do you mean in this context? Because we have the court case in 1981 where you're saying the bishops wanted money but no oversight, which they received, and then a conversation between a bishop and Malcolm Turnbull three years ago um, down there in Canberra. What was it that the bishop actually said to Malcolm Turnbull that, 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 that creates this... this oh, well, this, he, he tried to... We, we dealt with this last week, of course. The, when, when, I think it's worth um, revisiting, Jane. I really do. I really think it's worth revisiting. Okay. Uh, my understanding is that uh, Turnbull and Birmingham were concerned that the outrageous resourcing of wealthy schools, wealthy Catholic schools, at the expense of poor Catholic schools, when Bogonsky and Carmel and others, there had been this uh, principle of needs policy, when they discovered that, in fact, when he discovered this was just not happening because of Trevor Cobalt's work and the My School website, um, he confronted Bishop Archbishop Fisher with this. And Archbishop Fisher up in uh, Sydney more or less indicated to him, look, we're both people that deal with power. Um, if I was to send the money to the disadvantaged children out in the um, outblocks, then the children in your electorate, in your middle-class electorate, would have to pay higher fees. And you don't really want that, do you? And Turnbull was quite horrified at the level of hypocrisy that this indicated. But the dogs have known about this hypocrisy since the word go. And we've been trying to say the Catholic Church has been rorting the system since 1973. And we put, actually we've put full page advertisements in the paper to try to indicate this. And every time you tried to indicate what was really going on, uh, you're called sectarian. But the chickens are all starting to come home to roost because the numbers are out there and the levels of inequality in Australia are growing substantially all the time. And this um, uh, pandemic situation that we have got has actually lifted the uh, lid off a very smelly garbage tin. Uh, and people are starting to wonder, look, what is really going on here? And what happened? And I think that um, some people are starting to rethink the dog's high court case. We always knew that we were right. We didn't. We wouldn't. Have, we would never have gone to the high court unless we thought that we had a, a very good case. But uh, we had more trust in the high court judges. Uh, we were correct. It is correct when the um, gentleman from the Catholic Education Office says in the ABC program that he thought that we were naive. We were naive. We really believed that if we could get to the High Court, the judges would believe and be interested in our arguments. But they were not. Um, it was a political decision with perhaps the exception of um, Justice Murphy's decision. 
So uh, I hope that answers your question. Uh, I think it does indeed, Harvey. I have a follow-up question. Um, the, the, the decision of the High Court in 1981 was what was described in the radio show we've just heard on Radio National, or just replayed here on 3CR, um, as a narrow interpretation, the decision in 1980, a narrow interpretation. Now, there's some question as to whether the High Court still interprets decisions in a narrow way. Perhaps you could explain. Being a lawyer yourself, it was interesting that in the Radio National show, Jane, you were described as a, an ex-teacher. But in fact, you're not just an ex-teacher. Um, you have a PhD in educational history. And indeed, you're a lawyer, um, a, a practicing solicitor. So can I ask you as a lawyer, Jane, um, in, about the difference in interpretation um, between the High Court of 1981 and the High Court of 2020? <laughs> I would trust this High Court either. I think that some of the academics who would like to rerun the case are, are no longer naive, put it that way. But, um, no, the, the Section 116, uh, we were going in on the Establishment Clause, which says that the Commonwealth shall not establish any religion. And this was taken almost word for word from the American Constitution and uh, in the American Constitution and also in our parliamentary debates. Uh, the uh, founding fathers thought that this meant that you would have a wall of separation between church and state. Now, I'll repeat it again. The Commonwealth shall not make any law establishing any religion. And the High Court interpreted that to mean the Commonwealth shall not make a law or any law for establishing a particular religion. And they said that all it was talking about was what had happened in England when they had and had still an established church. But this is not what the founding fathers intended at all. They were referring not just to a particular religion, but any religion. And in the the actual debates of the of the um, Constitutional Convention of, 19, of 1898, it was perfectly clear that the Founding Fathers, um, particularly um, Higgins, Henry Bourne's Higgins, knew exactly what they intended. And the question was asked, does this mean that uh, the Commonwealth cannot give money state aid to private schools, to religious schools. And they said yes. But none so of this evidence let's, let's, was allowed let's into the point. High Court. Let's just, let's just continue with that because I think that's very important. So in the formation of the Australian Constitution, the question was asked, if this Constitution is drafted and interpreted in the way that it is intended in 1898, um, it would therefore naturally follow that no religion or any religion, would not receive any Commonwealth funds for any purposes, including education. Correct. Who found that out? The best way to establish it is to fund it. Pardon? Who went back and did that research on, on, on whose problem? Oh, um, 
my husband Richard Ely, Dr. Richard Ely, wrote a book. Yes, in 1976, we went back as historians. May Nelson was part of this too. And we found well, the old You also have a doctorate in, in, in educational history, don't you? Yes, I'm interested in history. But um, Richard, my husband, wrote a book for his PhD, and it was then published by the Melbourne University Press, and it is called Unto God and Caesar. But the, um, the High Court did not want to read this book. They weren't prepared to even look at it. Only Justice Murphy read it. So um, the actual intention of the founding fathers did not come into the High Court case because we were not allowed at that point to bring it in. But since then, in 1983, uh, there was another uh, very interesting piece of legislation went through the Commonwealth Parliament, uh, the Acts Interpretation Act, uh, which uh, amended the original Acts Interpretation Act of 1901, which enabled the educa- any any extraneous material that would be relevant to come into the High Court. Thank you, Jean. You've been listening to the Doctor Program here on 3CR 855 on AM Doc. Coming to the end of our hour here in Community Radio, but I think we're going to continue this conversation because it's worth having and it seems very important in this context to tease these things out because in 2020, as we slowly emerge from our plague holes, wherever we happen to be, there'll be some serious questions asked about how taxpayers' money is spent accountably and effectively. And it's been some time since money has been spent accountably and effectively in the private school system. So these are good things to think about in terms of principles for Australians. Um, But until next week, um, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, If you're interested in this program and what we've been doing, of course, there's the ABC website, but there's ours as well at www.adogs.info, www.adogs.info, or indeed at 3cr.org.info, au, I should say, that's 3cr.org.au. Don't give the station a call at the moment. They're not there. Uh, We're not contactable by telephone because we're all hiding out our own little holes, broadcasting into the ether from our little caves, hiding away from the virus. But from Jean and myself and Dale, until next week, and we look forward to your company again, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper 
horses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe. What they can never kill. Went on to organize. Went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find. The Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. To help stop the spread of viruses like flu and coronavirus, good hygiene is essential. That starts with washing your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds whenever you cough, sneeze, or blow your nose. Prepare food or eat. Care for someone sick, touch your face, or use the toilet. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.